Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 20 degrees, 8.07, time for one of my favorite guests, Professor David Schultz. How are you this evening? I am doing very well. How about you and tonight? Uh, doing pretty well. The temperatures, as Jonathan put it, are moderating. Yes. This is one of the few places around where you can say 18 to 20 degrees feels almost balmy and feels moderate. Yes, it, it, it does. Um, so much to talk about. We want to get into Amy Klobuchar's campaign. We want to talk about what's going on at the legislature. Uh, we want to talk about Ilhan Omar. Uh, but maybe we should start with what is going on with uh, the president and this emergency declaration saying that that he is going to declare a national emergency and and get the money for his border structure wall whatever you want to call it barrier uh from other sources uh in the federal government what are your thoughts about that well obviously what we're going to start to see now over the next few days in fact i think we've already seen some of the initial lawsuits being filed is claiming that what he's doing is unconstitutional And I think there's a pretty good argument to be made that there are some constitutionality issues with his decision to use this kind of emergency powers, if in fact they do exist. And we'll start with a real simple proposition here, as I I tell my con law students, is that money can't be spent unless there's legal authorization to do so. And our best example for that is what? That's why we've had a partial government shutdown. If there's no authorization, you can't spend money. And if Congress authorizes money to be spent in a specific way, it has to be spent that way. And this is the difficulty now for Donald Trump. He wants to take money that has been authorized for other purposes and divert that to be used for the building of a wall. And I think if most of us remember a little bit of our, our, let's say, civics, um, we know that how a bill becomes a law, Congress passes it, the president signs it, um, the president just can't unilaterally change the law or change appropriations uh, because that raises, what, a separation of powers issue. So that's going to be the battle that we're going to see now emerging over the next few weeks. And. So it sounds like you're saying it could be un- – you think that this is unconstitutional, what yeah, the president's trying to do. I actually do. I actually think there's constitutional problems. I also think the National Emergencies Act um, has a lot of problems in itself um, in the sense that it doesn't define what a national emergency is. The act also doesn't say uh, that the president can divert earmarked money or legislatively earmarked money already for other purposes – And then there's another law out there called the 1974 Budget Act that says that presidents may not use money except for the purposes that the Congress has has decided it may do so. So I think there are a lot of problems um, in terms of what the president is doing. And even if, 
even if he were to prevail, and I don't think he's going to prevail, by the way, at the end of the day, uh, um, Nancy Pelosi made a good point the other day. She said that, well, if the president wins on this, what is to prevent um, a future president from declaring, for example, that guns are a national emergency or that, let us say, um, um, the, the environment or global warming and now wants to channel funds um, in, in a unilateral way? It sets dangerous legal and public policy precedent if this were to happen, if Trump were to prevail. And we're seeing many Republicans in Congress who are are kind of concerned, um, or very concerned, I should say, about... This Inclu- including Senate Republicans. Yes, exactly, I was going to say, who are worried that this is stomping all over Congress's power. And one of the things that members of Congress of both parties take seriously is what? Their power in Congress. Right. And, and, and obviously... The, the, you know, the idea that this would set a precedent and that the next president may not be a Republican. Exactly. And that's what Pelosi's point was, is that it could very well be a Kamala Harris, it could be an Amy Klobuchar, whoever, who will then declare something that that Republicans may not like um, in terms of being a national emergency. So I think there are a variety of problems um, with what Trump is doing. All right, so my students asked me the question, what happens next? All right, so for, for the listeners here, let me give you an idea. What's happening is that we have several property owners who are suing, who live along the border, claiming that, um, they're gonna, they're, that the federal government can't take their property um, for, for building the border wall. That's one lawsuit. We have several states, such as I think California Attorney General has already indicated that he will sue on behalf of California. We will probably see several members of Congress um, also suing. What I, I think the suits will probably be filed next week. They will ask for what's called a temporary restraining order to halt the president from proceeding with what he's doing. That request for a temporary restraining order, I suspect, will be granted by a district court. It'll go up to the U.S. Supreme Court on expedited review, where they'll have to decide whether or not to uphold that temporary restraining order. Again, I suspect they will, and then it'll get slogged out on the courts on the merits, and that could take, who knows, months um, for that to get resolved. You know, another thing, too, what the president is saying that he plans to do, this is not just about obtaining monetary sources from other parts of the government. He's also talking about using the the United States military, and apparently this is the first uh, emergency order since 9-11 that would do that. Yes. I mean, is that something that's, that has potential problems, or does that just get rolled into these lawsuits as well? That gets rolled into the lawsuits okay. also in terms of his, his use of military personnel for, for this purpose. I think also what we're going to see here is with some of the money being diverted from military construction projects for this, what we are going to see is perhaps some government contractors who were anticipating or maybe have been already promised contracts who may also be suing too. So we may just see multiple, multiple lawsuits coming from states, members of Congress, private property owners, as well as from, let us say, government contractors all, all suing um, to stop this diversion of funds. On top of which, again, I mentioned to my students yesterday, 
that in building this very large wall, it also potentially runs adrift of, of several environmental laws, and there may very well be a lawsuit saying that the building of a wall like this requires an environmental impact statement, um, which could, again, take, take years to do. My, my own prediction, this is just my own prediction based upon looking at what I think are the legal issues and logistical issues, um, if at all this wall gets built, it's going to be years before construction takes place. And a lot of legally legal hours. <laughs> a lot of legal hours. This is, this is the, this is and the, taxpayers pay the bill. Exactly. I was going to say, oh. we've learned that in Minnesota from all the lawsuits between governor and legislature. Yeah, this will be millions of dollars in lawsuits in terms of fighting all this out. So, yes, the taxpayers will be on the hook for these fights. Most right. of these fights. All right, listen, we do have to take a break. You're listening to News Talk 830. When we come back, more Professor David Schultz will uh, transition into a discussion about Senator Amy Klobuchar's presidential campaign. It's 819, Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz, talking politics here. Uh, your thoughts about the rollout of uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar's presidential campaign. I was actually at the event uh, last Sunday, uh, the snowy event last Sunday, and I thought it was really a remarkable visual for her. Uh, the event, you know, taking place in a str- – it wasn't quite the blizzard that she said, but it was a, a strong, heavy snow. Uh, and it, it really was, I thought, a remarkable event. There were thousands of people there. The weather was quite cold and, as I said, very, very snowy. Uh, and I thought it was really a, a remarkable rollout that visually certainly looks different than anybody else's. I was going to say that you rarely see this kind of rollout. The last time I can remember anything like this, now I'm, I feel like I'm getting really ancient. It was like, I think, in 72 when Ed Muskie was, was talking in the snow up in New Hampshire. So you don't usually see candidates outside in, 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 in huge snowstorms declaring that they're running for president of the United States. Now, clearly, this is going to be an interesting question here. Clearly, I think it played exceedingly well um, in Minnesota and maybe in the upper Midwest. I, I'm not sure how it played across the rest of the country. I know on Monday, I looked at like the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, all the major papers, and they talked about the weather, but they didn't cover as much of the content of her declaration. And this makes me wonder if the weather um, and the snow and the choreographic look of it overshadowed her message. You know, I, I don't know. And, and I think that that's, you know, it's going to be remain, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see, you know, yeah. how she fares. Uh, and obviously she was positioning herself as being from the Midwest. Right. And, and her, the speech, as it was written, which she wrote herself, really had all these sort of poetic references to the Mississippi River and, you know, the Stone Arch Bridge, which were right behind her. Right. I mean, right behind her, but nobody could see them because it that's was right. snowing so hard. Right. Uh, but I do think... I do think that image of of not, uh, you know, and and in her presentation, I I think she was very at ease, very comfortable. She was even laughing at the weather, saying, "Hey, you know, this is nothing. You know, I've I've got grit." And it, I think it it made a statement there. And I think she certainly is uh, obviously already seizing in her first campaign stop today, talking about her midwestern roots. She actually went to. Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and she did say in the speech on Sunday, which I think was – I saw it as a dig to Hillary Clinton in which she said um, 
Wisconsin didn't get a lot of campaigning. I'm paraphrasing now. Uh, in 2016, uh, that's going to be different with me. And that was her first campaign stop. Your thoughts on that? Well, she's clearly correct. I mean, one of the mistakes that Clinton made um, in 2016 was assuming that the Midwest would be hers. And this is what people called, you know, the, the, the Democrats' blue wall, that, that of course they were going to win because they've been holding the Midwest. And if we think about what Clinton didn't do, and like I've told this story, I think we've talked about it before, I'm not sure if I'm the air, but remember, Clinton loses the, the caucuses in Minnesota pretty badly to Sanders. Yeah, loses- by 30... 30- Thirty some points, and she yeah, and she did come here. She did, uh, but, but she only came here for the caucus. She didn't come here after correct, the caucus. Correct. What I was going to say is that she lost here, lost in Wisconsin to Sanders, lost in Michigan to Sanders, and then after the conventions for the general election, she never comes back here, never goes back to Wisconsin. I think she only made a fundraising trip um, to Michigan, and at the, on the other hand. Trump, in this closing week, um, comes through here. I remember we talked about this where he's down by the airport, and I remember Russ talking about it, how many people showed up to his um, um, his rally at the airport. I think it was near the airport. Wasn't it correct? Right. It, it was at the airport, and I've talked to some people who, who worked on the, the Trump campaign, and this is the rally we're talking about is the rally that Donald Trump came to Minnesota two days before the election. Mm-hmm. And it was crazy. I mean, it, there were thousands of people there. People literally were leaving. I've never seen anything like it. The people were leaving their cars on Highway 77 to jump over fences to see him. Right. And a, a number of Republicans that I've talked to said the goal of that really was to get that um, eastern or excuse me, western Wisconsin viewing audience mm-hmm. because the western you know the people who live in western Wisconsin watch. The Twin Cities television, and that's what they were really aiming at. What happened was that I guess Donald Trump won, and I guess, but Donald Trump won Wisconsin by I think less than one percent. It was very close, and he almost won Minnesota. Exactly right. And so the point getting here is that I think Klobuchar's reference is correct. Is that there's this great old adage by former Democratic Speaker of the House. Um, Tip O'Neill, who said, never take a vote for granted, ask for every vote. And in many ways, Clinton assumed Minnesotans, Iowans, um, Wisconsinites, and Michigan, um, um, was it Michiganites, or whatever it's got, Michigan's, 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 um, would vote for her, and she lost um, several of those states. And so I think Klobuchar's, one of her big arguments is to say that I'm from the Midwest, the Democrats, correctly so, have to recapture these Midwest states in order to win the presidency. So I think that's going to be one of her strongest arguments. And if she couples that with learning from Clinton's mistakes and actually going out and campaigning in these states, that's a major plus or a major difference from what uh, Secretary Clinton did three years ago. Right. And I read the coverage of her um, campaign stop in – Eau Claire, and she apparently, I guess her mother is from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. It's always helps to have those kinds of things, little details you can throw out there. And, mm-hmm. and her, her, her grandparents apparently were cheesemakers mm-hmm. in Wisconsin, so that's, that's, that, that can't hurt. I thought to say, not throwing too many stereotypes out here, but <laughs> certainly not going to hurt. Now, yeah. if she could somehow say that she also had a relative work at Lining Kugels out there or something like that, that would just be the icing on the cake. Right. But it, it is obviously uh, still very early. And also, there's another big. Big event for her on Monday night. 
I guess CNN is giving hour-long town halls to whatever Democratic candidates yeah. are, uh, are, are, are venturing in and agreeing to do it. I think they did one for Kamala Harris. I think they did one for the uh, CEO of Starbucks who might run. Um, how, how important is that hour-long thing? It's only – it's a, CNN, but you know, it's one hour. I don't know how many people would be watching, but how important is that for her? It's tremendously important because if we go back to, I think, the most recent polls that we've seen, about two, two and a half weeks ago, there was a Washington Post ABC poll and asked people who identified as Democrats who their choices were. And Amy Klobuchar came in at the back of the pack at 2%, way behind the front runners, which are Biden, Sanders, and and Kamala Harris, Senator Harris. What the Klobuchar needs to do clearly at this point is dramatically raise her profile. Profile for two reasons. One, so that people just know she's running, and B, she has to raise her profile because she has to raise an enormous amount of money to be able to successfully run for President of the United States. And so I think CNN becomes critical for that profiling and identifying herself so that she can really start to develop the fundraising tools, fundraising networks, and again, um, building those grassroots organizations across the country. Right. And I think I think it is a forum that she will be very good at. Um, I, whereas I think somebody like an Elizabeth Warren, it would be a very uncomfortable situation. I mean, Senator Klobuchar is very good at that. I, I, I bet she does very well, but I bet somebody like a Kamala Harris or a Cory Booker would also do really well. I think your point is exceedingly well taken. I think of somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who I think, and I don't mean this in a criticism here, um, I think she's a very good um, show person. I think she does a really good job putting on a great speech and really rousing a crowd. But this is more of a kind of a one-on-one conversation. And I think Senator Klobuchar does a pretty good job doing those kind of formats. Yeah, very good job. Whereas Elizabeth Warren has had some, but I think she does a very good job. Also, Kamala Harris, also a former prosecutor, somebody who's used to being on their feet. Uh, I think Klobuchar really does, really has the potential to stand out here. Again, I really do think that she'll do very well. Elizabeth Warren, I... I, I don't know if we got into this the, the last time we were on, but that, that latest – within the past 10 days, there's been another document that came out mm-hmm. claiming where she wrote down when she was applying for the bar in Texas in the mid-80s that she wrote as her race, mm-hmm. uh, American Indian. Yes. You know, and certainly the 80s, a time when, when you know affirmative action was in full swing. I just I, – I think that's a problem. Why do too? I really do. Yeah, and whether it's self-inflicted or if President Trump has done a good job in terms of tagging around it, and and there's probably blame or probably responsibility on both sides, um, I think that's going to put a limit in terms of where Warren goes. And and I'm, I'm just not persuaded at this point that at the end of the day that... Warren is going to um, right. have, have long legs in terms of going and getting, getting the nomination. Yeah, speaking of, of uh, President Trump, I think President Trump did Amy Klobuchar an enormous favor mm-hmm. by tweeting about her, yes. saying, why is she talking about global warming uh, in the middle of a blizzard? And, you know, Klobuchar, of course, fired back. There's a difference between weather and climate change. I mean, that could that was a gift. I think. Yes, it, I do too. I think it I think it helped. And also any time 
the president starts to mention you, um, especially for Klobuchar right now, who's not very well known, it gives her an opportunity to respond. But I think, again, the critical thing she needs to do, I think, on Monday night is define yourself, you know, because for a lot of people, it's still going to be, you know, Amy, Amy who? who? Yeah. yeah. And so, so, and I think back when she first ran for the, the U.S. Senate in Minnesota, her opening commercial, which def- basically said who Amy Klobuchar is is, is, is good. And I think she knows how to define herself, and that's going to be her challenge. I think her other challenge, though, here is the fact that we have a Democratic Party that's moving further to the left, right. and she's a little bit more centrist, and she's, she's got to figure out how to navigate that, too. A lot of questions. A lot of questions. All right, we have to take a quick break to give you some weather. When we come back, we'll be back with more. Professor David Schultz will talk about the controversy surrounding freshman Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. And we'll also talk about some of the major measures that that might make it out of the Minnesota legislature. There was actually a news conference that kind of got buried this past week with all the legislative leaders, including the governor, saying, hey, we are all going to work together. It's not going to come down to the last day this year. Will that happen? We'll see. We'll get Schultz's take on that. So keep it here. I'll take a quick break and give you some weather. It is 19 degrees, 836 in the Twin Cities. Uh, Esme Murphy along with Professor David Schultz. Not a great week for Congresswoman Ilhan Omar that had to – she had to apologize twice uh, for some of her tweets about Israel and tweets that were widely seen by both Republicans and Democrats as anti-Semitic. Uh, your thought about the, the consequences of this, um, obviously she's a new member of Congress. Uh, she apologized again on Friday. Where does she go from here? Well, she's. it's, it's an interesting question regarding how damaged – she is short-term or long-term. And I say that because um, at, at least I'm going to say short-term, her, her, her influence in Congress, which is, is not much, of course, because she's a first-termer, I think she's hurt quite a bit because the leadership has criticized her. Uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi's criticized her. And so I think she's, she's, he's, she's really hurt, she hurt there now. What she can learn longer term from this is yet to be seen. Now, yes, she did score some points this week, you know, where after Trump tweeted and said she ought to resign, you know, she hit back at him and said, well, I think you ought to resign. I think what she said, something like you've been peddling in hate all your right. life or something like that. You know, so, so there's a sense in which, you know, she did get some, at least with her constituents and with some Democrats, you know, she, she did all right. But I think larger I think the question is, what does she learn from this? And if she doesn't change, I guess, her tone in terms of on the, the issues of her perceived anti-Semitism, I think this is going to have a problem both within her district, which has the largest percentage of Jewish voters of any congressional district in Minnesota, and also I think it could hurt her um, as she, you know, tries to move up in terms of seniority and her influence in Congress. Right. And, uh, you know, what you, you said is, is absolutely true. I did uh, do an interview with the Jewish Community, Community Relations Council, and they did, in fact, say that 5th District, which is not just Minneapolis, but it's also Golden Valley, it's St. Louis Park, 
does have by far what they said the highest proportion numbers of, of, of Jewish uh, constituents and also the most synagogues yes. uh, of any congressional district in Minnesota. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that, that you're not going to get a Republican elected in that district. I mean, that's just not going to happen. Right. But uh, do you think that, that if this kind of controversy continues, that, that she could be potentially in trouble in terms of the nomination or endorsements? Or, or do you think it's still very early on and people will move on? Well, it is early, but the accounts that I've seen indicate that even before these tweets, the Jewish community had spoken to um, Omar and had concerns about her, um, about sort of the content and some of her, her comments. Yes, yeah. Senator Ron Latz was quoted as a senator yes, from St. Yes. Louis Park. And the question becomes, I think at some point, how far or how long their patience persists before they might decide to say, let's just say a scenario, that sometime early next year, they decide to not support her and encourage somebody else to run um, the challenger in the primary. Uh, remember, the, the best time to, to defeat a, a, a member of Congress is, once they've been elected, is that very first time they run for re-election. So she could be, she could be vulnerable and, and a, a viable candidate um, um, you know, could, if could if could be found, you know, could be, could be a serious challenge to her. And as you point out again, there, it, it is a district with a um, a very you know high. I think I think you're absolutely correct here. Um, there's more synagogues in that district than any in Minnesota, um, and there are I think lots of people who, even if they're not Jewish, you know, um, would be un- are uncomfortable with some of her statements, you know, that she has made. Right. Well, it remains to be seen, and obviously she's new and she's not used to this kind of extraordinary scrutiny that, that, that she is uh, getting. And certainly – and she did win by, I think, 75 percent of the vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember uh, her staff telling me that this was like – it was like the sixth highest vote total of all members of Congress. I mean it was an extraordinary win, and obviously there were a lot of Jewish voters that, that, that voted for her. So Right, right. This is – this is even when Keith Ellison, you know, held a seat before. I, I explain to my students and say this is probably the one of the two or three safest Democratic seats in the United States, and there, there's literally no chance a Republican is going to win. Um, it is really all about um, the within the Democratic Party, and we might recall. I'm trying to remember now. Was there like four or five people? Um, who ran in the primary um, back in 2018. And it's it's a possibility um, for next year, but I think we have to see where where it's going to be for the next few weeks, probably next next few months. And if it looks like she's continuing to sort of self-inflict wounds upon herself, you might start to see other Democrats thinking that she's vulnerable and consider challenging her. Right. And and it's it's interesting because... yeah, Representative Dean Phillips, who's also a freshman uh, from the 3rd Congressional District, he's the one who beat Eric Paulson, uh, and he is Jewish. And he said that in a news conference that he had a, a very intense discussion with her, and he said what he would like to see is sort of you know more governing, less tweeting. The irony, of course, is that she's in a Twitter war with the president. The person who <laughs> is most often kind of criticized for that is the president himself. Right. Uh, and that sort of tweeting from the hip – as opposed to really thinking about what you're putting out there, because it, it, it amounts to a statement. 
of, of policy when you're a member of Congress or you're the President of the United States. You're absolutely correct. I think the other thing that Omar needs to concentrate on, and people oftentimes forget this, that a large chunk of what also determines your electability or reelectability, I should say, uh, is constituent service. And one of the things that she needs to establish um, is a good record of constituent service and responding to concerns, responding to complaints. And I say this because a lot of times what members of Congress do is someone calls and says, Grandma didn't get her Social Security check. And what is your job? To go help Grandma get her Social Security check. And I say that because, again, she's going to be getting um, constituent service requests. She has to build that right now. And a lot of those constituents are going to be people who are Jewish. And if they feel, again, that they're not getting appropriate service or feel like maybe they feel like they can't approach her because some of those comments, again, these pose problems for her. Right. And the constituents, you know, that's something we don't focus on. I mean, that's so true. And somebody like an Amy Klobuchar has really got that down. I mean, I know a number of people who've gone to her office for things like a passport or a, a missed social security check or something like that and gotten immediate help. Uh, I, I know that, that, you know, members of Congress of Minnesota really pride themselves on that. I do know that one thing that she was able to do is that a lot of members of Congress apparently, and this hasn't gotten a lot of coverage, were, were slow in setting up their offices both back in their home districts and in Washington because of the shutdown. And Omar's folks, and and Congresswoman Omar herself told me that because they basically knew she was going to win, they they had everything in place early. So so that could give her an advantage there because that is tremendously important and something that that, that really – if you're going to win in Congress, you've got to be able to deliver for for your constituents because that definitely is is a key factor. Yeah, this is a make or break. I was going to say back in New York when I used to work in local government, there'd be a lot of calls that I would get that I couldn't handle at the city level, but they were federal issues, and I would refer those over to the member of Congress. And again, smart members of Congress know that, like, boom, those are the things you have to do because if for for every time you help somebody, they'll say to probably 20 of their friends and say, boy, I called um, Congresswoman you know, or Senator Klobuchar about X, Y, and Z, and she did a great job helping me on this. I mean, that's, I mean it's, it's like in businesses. Word of mouth is the, is the best advertising you can have. Right, and that's, that's exactly what I think, you know, you're absolutely, absolutely correct on that. Listen, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get Professor Schultz's take on can there really be togetherness at the Minnesota State Legislature? Can they get things done this year? That's what they all came together and said at a news conference. Keep it here. You're listening to News Talk 830. It is 8.50 on a Saturday night. Esme Murphy along with studio co- uh, coordinator and producer Shaletta Brundage. I also want to give a shout-out to Jonathan Lowe, who was the studio coordinator for the first couple of hours, and also uh, Dave Josephson, who does a fabulous job producing this show. Thanks to all. Uh, chatting here with Professor David Schultz, I uh, want to ask you, uh, there was – and this didn't get a lot of play because it got buried with all the other news that was going on, but there was a news conference that Speaker, uh, Minnesota House Speaker Melissa Hortman was at – also, uh, Senator Paul Gazelka, the Republican majority leader, and Governor Tim Walls all saying 
they were going to work together to make sure there wasn't an end of year or end of session crisis as there has been every year for umpteen years, uh, that they will work to make sure that it doesn't come down to the last minute at the legislature. Is that going to hold up? I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, what, but they were all there together and they said, no, we've got this new timeline and it's all going to, you know, I mean, it'd be great because it, it, it does sound like it's just – I mean, it's just a craziness that you've got all these bills that, that people can't possibly read and, and know what's in them. And, and there's always problems. And they were all like, nope, we're all in this together. Right. No, you're right. I was going to say, they, they set what's called early deadlines to, try, um, to make sure things would got, get through committees so there would be sufficient time to deliberate on them. But I think there are two or three... Maybe, maybe more reasons why I'm skeptical. You know, one of them, of course, is just a human nature issue, which is what? Procrastination. And legislators do the same thing. They're going to procrastinate until the last minute and put off stuff. Second is that generally it's not until the end of February, early March, do we have what's called the, the fiscal forecast that really tells us how much money there really is in terms of a surplus, deficit, or whatever. And I say that because every two years, really none of the real budget work occurs until after that forecast comes out. And we're still waiting for the governor also to come up with his revised, um, his revised budget. So we have a lot of things that are going to get pushed and really aren't going to start till March. On top of which, the Democrats, I think including Governor Waltz, um, have a set of priorities that are not shared by the Republicans, uh, ranging anywhere from issues on, on, let us say, guns to issues such as perhaps legalization of marijuana, although that's not a high, as a high priority even for the Democrats, to a whole bunch of other things in terms of early childhood education. And I just see the Democrats and Republicans, no matter how much they say they're going to work together, there's an enormous ideological divide and partisan divide on these issues. It does appear, though, that there's that it might be better than last year or the year before. Oh, yeah. uh, I, you know, it just seems, in terms of the way everyone's working together, and there does seem to be agreement on on some very big issues. I do think there's going to be a distracted driving bill that comes out yeah, of think, the legislature. Yeah, I think that's clearly. I think we're going to see something, but, which is a big deal because it affects everybody. Oh, it sure, it affects absolutely everybody, and I think there's powerful bipartisan consensus that we have to get a grip on that because, you know, as we see the statistics, I mean, we're seeing mounting evidence of its toll it's taking on the roads. But let me pick an issue that one would think that there would be bipartisan support for, but I think it's breaking down, which is to change the state law standard for, for proof of, of sexual harassment in the workplace. Our current standard is perverse, per, um, pervasive and substantial um, Im, you know, impact at, at that work such that it essentially changes the workplace conditions. And one would think that there would be pretty good um, support for changing that, yet there seems to be among many Republicans concerned regarding what that standard actually means. And it's also not clear yet it's even going to get a, a hearing in the, in the Senate. So again, on some issues, which again, I would normally think of, or many of us would think there would be bipartisan consensus on, um, that we're not going to see. And I also don't, or we might not see um, until very late, but also a couple of other big issues that are looming out there beyond having to do the budget. Uh, I don't 
think we're, and that I think we'll get done. I don't think we're going to break down on that. But we've got questions regarding the the demand by the Waltz administration a request to increase the the, the gas tax to pay for infrastructure, and also we have a seven hundred million dollar uh, medical provider tax that's going to expire, and 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 there is a big gap between the Democrats and Republicans over to what to do on that. Right. I mean, so so many things. Um, also, you've got sort of the Minlars fiasco that yeah. continues. And the very powerful chair of the Senate Transportation Committee, Scott Newman, says he may not even give a hearing to a proposal that they need $15 million of emergency funding uh, to kind of keep things going. Right. Uh, and I think that obviously is is something that, that is going to be up in the air. Yeah, and this is an interesting issue because it, that Walt is inheriting a problem from a previous administration that was unable to solve it. And I was sort of thinking that maybe there would be a honeymoon period or there might be sort of some slack cut for Waltz to go and say, "Well, listen, whatever you may think about you know about you know about the problem, I agree with you. Minlars is a problem. Um, let's see if we can work together on this one." It's not clear, even on an issue like that, that they're going to be able to work together. Even though, again, you can't claim that the Waltz administration, at least when it took office, owned that issue. All right. Well, listen, Professor David Schultz, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. No problem. And good night to all. Good night to all. Absolutely. All right, folks. Thank you so much. This has been a, a great show. Please tune in to WCCO-TV tomorrow morning, 1030 a.m. My guest will be the governor of Minnesota, Tim Walls, and the first lady of Minnesota, Mrs. Gwen Walls. Keep it here. News Talk 830. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.